available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. Liner, gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together we make the Podcast of Champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. we got a special guest for you today. We'll get to it in a minute. If you have any questions for us, please email pac12podcast at gmail.com. If you'd rather call or text us, you can leave us a voicemail. Shoot us a text, 424-532-0678. Tweet us in that Twitterverse, at Pac-12Podcast. The website is Pac-12Podcast.com. You can find all the old episodes. You can also find us on Reddit, reddit.com slash r slash podcast of champions. And we've been doing a push lately. Please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Five-star rating is great. We love all that. So please do that on your Apple podcasting app, any of your Apple platform, Apple devices. You can do that. And we are going to bring in the man, the guy who really runs this show from behind the scenes, John Wilner. <laughs> does, yeah, basically, we just talk about what John writes about. Follow him on Twitter at Wilner Hotline. He does the Pac-12 Hotline, which is a great newsletter, part of the Bay Area news group up there, the San Jose Mercury News. John, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Boy, you guys are everywhere. I did not realize you have that many different platforms and outlets. We, I I think if we if we were literally if we had like four listeners we could still get out there on all those different <laughs> platforms and there's no telling maybe we only have four listeners it's hard to say are you on Al Jazeera as well <laughs> <laughs> probably probably iHeart Stitcher we I don't even go through the whole list we got all those things and this is funny so look on John's profile on his Twitter profile and he has a uh, hashtag uh, Fauci for Heisman. Um, he has a picture of Dr. Fauci on there. For us, you're kind of like our Dr. Fauci when it comes to Pac-12 stuff. Like you are the expert, the one we always turn to when, hey, what's going on with the with Larry Scott and the the Pac-12 CEO group? Well, what's John Wilner saying? So we we do appreciate you coming on and actual having instead of talking about Disney princesses and apples and presidents, we're going to actually talk about the Pac-12. So we appreciate having you on. My pleasure. Just don't drink bleach. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing i think we should always like end the show with that advice from here on out yeah. just don't drink bleach whatever you do in life kids don't drink bleach um john i've got a question for you right off the bat where does the current like machinations behind the scenes on what's going on with this where does it rank with like off-season stuff you've covered like how does this rank with i don't know realignment um, like where does this kind of stand in terms of busyness and in terms of all the different moving parts? The summer of, I guess it was the summer of 2010. That was bananas, right? 16 team super conference, Texas in the pack 10, but this is, you know, in some ways this is dwarfs that because this is, you know, the entire sport, uh, and the repercussions that would come with there being no football for, you know, empl- 
athletic department employees and all those sports and all those student athletes. I mean, you think about the opportunity. We're talking about tens of thousands of student athletes across the country whose sports could be on the line if there is no football. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, you know, the pandemic is nothing. It's, it's something that we would read about in a history book and it's playing out in real time for us. And the state of college football is, you know, just as momentous on, on its own scale. It's incredible. It is this, one of these crazy off seasons where you just don't know which way it's going to turn. And when you have, it's not just conferences are doing different things or school, you know, schools doing different things, conferences doing different things. You have local uh, governments doing different things. You have the national government, you have the NCAA, all the different conference, you know, leaders, all, you know, everyone has to kind of come together to make college football happen. And I think just a month ago, there wasn't a lot of optimism that this was all going to work. Maybe the SEC would just have college football and no one else would. Now, John, it just seems like those steps are being taken by everyone that were maybe going off in different directions. Now they're starting to kind of conver- you know, co- converge on this one single path where we could have college football in the fall. It is definitely the momentum has picked up dramatically in like the last, say, two weeks. There's no doubt about that. And part of that is because this is one of three or four basically decision points right? I mean, the end of May, you got, you got these three phases, right? Going reverse. You got to try to start on time in early September. You got to get the kids on campus for, for training camp and work official workouts and training camp in late July. And then you got to be beginning to bring them back in early mid June. So this is the kind of, we've reached the decision point for that first phase and, and all the conferences have you know, remained aligned to this point. It couldn't have worked out better if you were kind of sketching things out from April 1st to right now. This is about as good as it was going to get. Yeah. Now the issue is going to be, you know, is every are all the schools going to be able to bring their guys back on onto campus in, in June? And that's partly dependent on, on what's going on in the, you know, with the state county uh, restrictions and, and how the governors and the health health officials all feel. But, I mean, it's, it's as encouraging a situation as you could have hoped for both for the PAC 12 and for college football in general. I know with sports folks, just like dealing with them over the years, a lot of them can be prone to what you might call unbridled optimism, both in micro and macro. How much of a sense are you getting that the different schools and their athletic departments are, and the conferences themselves are like in close contact with the governors and uh, is the optimism due to, you know, real thinking on the part of like the governors and state governments that they'll have opened things up enough for all of this to take place? You know, I think so. I have basically tried to, I mean, there's a lot of noise out there, right? I mean, you got coaches, you got ADs, uh, commissioners. I am trying to take my cue from the presidents and chancellors because yeah. like in the PAC 12, they're the they're the ones who are going to decide if there's football or not. They are working obviously with with governors and health officials, but you got to watch the camp what's going on on the campus side of, with the administrations. And in the last two weeks, maybe ten days, two weeks, a lot of Pac-12 presidents and chancellors have said we're planning on opening in the fall, whether it's for the fall semester or the fall quarter, we're planning on opening. 
We're working on a plan. Some of them have actually released plans. Colorado's plan was out yesterday. It's incredible, really creative about what they're going to try to do. But that's the key is the presidents and chancellors, and they are moving forward right now as if they are going to open in August. And if they're, if they're opening campus, there's a good chance football is going to play. Not, I mean, it's not guaranteed, but in the Pac-12, the one guarantee is if the campuses were shut down through the fall, there was going to be no football. So the fact that the presidents and chancellors have given encouraging signs might be the best way to put it. I mean, Janet Napolitano, head of the University of California, she said campus is going to open. Uh, universities are going to be open in the fall. That is a huge sign for the Pac-12, obviously, because California, you know, has been a little bit slower uh, in some regards to open back up. The fact that Napolitano is planning for the UCs to offer instruction, uh, at least partly, is is a huge deal for Cal and UCLA and for the rest of the conference. So I'm trying to take my cues from presidents and chancellors, and I would basically encourage all of your listeners to do that because there's a lot of noise out there about what might happen and what might not happen. So don't listen to us. Listen to the presidents of all the universities. I got it. Don't, don't listen. Ne- to- never, never listen to us. <laughs> well, the so the newsy kind of stuff that was coming down over the past, I guess, you know, a few days, week or so, when the NCAA said that they were going to allow, it's up to universities, but they would allow these in-person, on-campus uh, athletic workouts, um, you know, starting on June 1st, I believe, for the NCAA. And then the Pac-12, during Tuesday morning's CEO meeting, then they announced it, you know, late, I guess early in the afternoon, that Pac-12 schools, as long as it was okay with the local governments and if the universities wanted to do it, they could open up for those on-campus, in-person Athlete, you know, voluntary athletic workouts starting June fifteenth. Um, I what I wanted to get your thoughts on that, and then what you think about some of the universities that have come out and said things uh, about that afterwards. Yeah, I have not seen a university in the Pac-12 that has said it's not going to bring kids back or uh, back on campus in June. Some of them have said nothing. And some of them have said, we're, you know, our, our plans are in motion, so to speak. My guess is that everybody will uh, by the end of June. And, and, you know, I would also say that fans should not get hung up on specific dates, right? I mean, SEC's back on June 8th. If, if some Pac-12 schools are not back until, you know, the 25th or something, it don't panic. I mean, Oklahoma's not bringing their guys back till July 1st. So the dates for the this phase of the restart are are not that critical right what's critical is everybody basically has the same window for training camp and that's an issue that won't be tackled for you know many weeks uh but the conference you know the the presidents and chancellors they're very aware of what's going on elsewhere uh larry scott is on the phone with the other power five commissioners all the time they're trying to stay in lockstep They've got a medical advisor. Pac-12's got a medical advisory board that is, you know, providing uh, suggestions, uh, feedback to all the schools. And so it makes perfect sense that they're going to bring, you know, basically allow them to come back on the 15th. It's hard to say to Utah where like in Arizona, where the economies are kind of coming back to life and where restrictions have been eased. It's hard to say to those programs you can't you can't come back for voluntary workouts because California's still in a lockdown. The presidents don't want to do that. They have a yeah. very collegial 
you know, approach. And nobody is going to deny somebody else an opportunity if it is safe for their student athletes. So, uh, you know, I would say Utah and Arizona schools, Colorado, they'll probably be back right on the 15th. Some of the others probably won't be back until a little bit later. Yeah. In uh, in terms of, I know one of the other points of the debate is, um, okay, maybe the teams can get back on the field and play some games, but what about fans in the stands? Uh, what's your sense of that at the college level from these different universities and the plans for them? And is there any variance that you've heard from different schools on what their, their aims are for fans in the stands? Everybody is planning on it or hoping for it. Uh, you know, they've got, they're modeling up everything you know, in the universe from, from, you know, 50% capacity all the way down to no fans. Uh, everybody is hopeful. I, I remain skeptical that they're going to end up with fans. Uh, I don't know. I think that I'm a little bit more optimistic about that than I was a month ago, but I'm, I'm still kind of skeptical and I don't see any way that if they do have fans, that it's going to be more than, you know, 20% capacity, normal capacity, something like that. So, uh, I'm not going to make a joke about social distancing in the Rose Bowl last season. David just, I mean, <laughs> they've, we'll they've just been let, made and they're worthwhile. <laughs> they, they are. But, you know, I mean, Coliseum, you know, 15,000, say, uh, 18,000 max Husky stadium, you know, the bigger facilities will probably get into 15 to 18,000, but it's, if they do it, it's going to be a completely different experience completely different you know fans are going to have to have a timed entry based on your t- either your ticket location or your last name uh there's not going to be conce- i don't think there'll be concessions there's oh. no way there will be alcohol i think that they're gonna they don't want people in the concourse right if they're going to open the stadiums up they want you going from the the entry from your gate where you're going to have to show that you've got a mask straight to your seat and sitting in your seat. And the only time you get up to go somewhere is if you've got to go to the restroom, they don't want people mingling because mingling is a spreading event. So they want you in your seat. And when, when it game's over, you're going to probably have a specific path to follow, to get out of the stadium. Uh, It's going to be totally different. Uh, And it's all going to be based on, on social distancing and, and mitigating spread. It'll, you know, it's going to be interesting how many fans even want to go if you have the opportunity. That's a whole other issue. Yeah. Um, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's that's going to take away some of the experience if the fans can't do the tailgating, if they can't do what they want. Um, but on a more selfish level, John, what about what about the media? What are we are we going to be able to cover games or is it going to be like a limited amount? There's going to be like pool reporters. Like, how's that going to work? Well, they're still working on that, but it certainly will be limited. There's not going to, you know, seats in the press box. You're going to have, you know, a couple empty seats in between reporters. Uh, The interview process, if I were to bet, uh, the interview process after the game is going to be totally different. They may do it by Zoom so that they don't expose athletes to, to, you know, groups uh, of of untested uh, reporters, right? Cause testing is such an enormous component to this entire thing. I mean, it's all, I think it's all about the testing them being able to play football. It is all about having enough tests and having them be accurate enough and getting the, and getting the, uh, results quick enough. And the athletic directors are basing their current optimism on what they think is going to be the availability of tests 
for training camp and for the season. Um, but the schools are not going to want players exposed to reporters after the game. So that'll probably be zoom. It's going to be different. You know, I don't think there'll be buffet meals for the media. Uh, Damn you know, even the parking, I would, I would imagine, yeah, you know, parking for everybody's going to be different. You're not going to pull up next to another car. There's going to be a bunch of spaces in between. There's no chance. I don't think there's any chance that there's going to be alcohol available in the stadium. They're not going to want anybody getting belligerent. Everybody's going to have to wear masks. And the last thing you want, some drunk refusing to wear a mask and sneezing over on people. So it will be a totally different experience. And yeah, it's not going to be as much fun. There's not going to be as much energy. And it'll be interesting to see how many people really want to go until there's a vaccine. One thing we were talking about, um, I think in our last show is what do we, how robust do we think it'll be when they do go back? Like, what would it take for them to shut it down again? Um, you know, is it one guy on a team getting sick? Is it a cluster of, uh, you know, uh, outbreaks on different teams? What do you, how robust do you think this would be if they do, if everyone does say, okay, gung ho, we're going back in August for fall camp. We're starting the season on September 1st. What, is it still feeling like, you know, one little thing or a couple different things would knock this whole thing flying again? Or are, is there kind of will to keep this thing going if it starts again? There's $80 million worth of will for every school, <laughs> basically, you know, because that's what football means. So I got a list like on a yellow pad of questions that have yet to be answered. And at the top of the list are what happens if, a player gets uh, test yeah. positive. What happens if a coach tests positive? You know, I'm not even going to what, what happens if somebody, if somebody passes away, right? Certainly protecting not only for football, but generally for university life, protecting the coaches, the officials and the faculty are huge pieces of this entire calculation for the presidents and chancellors and, and the health officers, right? Because those are more at, at risk demographics. Uh, what happens, I think if a player, everybody knows a player is going to test positive at some point, right? I mean, uh, I think, uh, you know, the premier premier league, uh, opened up or is opening and they, one of the teams already announced they had a positive test, right? Uh, what, so what happens in European soccer in some ways is going to be kind of interesting for us to, for us to watch if they can test and trace well enough and a kid you know, your left guard tests positive on Thursday and they know exactly who he's been in contact with and they test him immediately. They may be able to mitigate the, you know, the, the spread, uh, mitigate the impact on the roster and keep playing. They're going to do everything they can to play until they're told they absolutely cannot play. And it's also possible they won't play for a week and somebody's going to have to forfeit. And then a week or two later, you, you, you know, you can play again. That is, this is like a marathon and it's a marathon that is going to get run in fits and starts. And maybe there's going to be two miles forward and then it's going to backtrack for a mile and then three miles forward and then backtrack for half a mile. It is, it is going to be not, not a linear path whatsoever to, to the end of the season. It's going to be fits and starts. The uh, from the talk that you've heard so far, John, and you mentioned that, like, what if a team has to take a week off and there's like a forfeit? I could see where the majority of teams are okay, programs are okay, but maybe a local government 
for some, you know, Michigan or something, they're like Michigan football and Michigan state, they can't happen. But the rest of the big 10 goes a big, yeah, they go forward as planned or I don't know, Colorado, there's like some big outbreak in there and they like have to shut it down for some reason. Um, I could see individual programs across the country in college football having to stop where everyone else keeps going. Has there any been talk of that? Like, what do you do for if there's playoff implications or anything like, you know, where you're not, you're going to be missing games because certain teams, they just dropped off your schedule, maybe from the beginning of the season or maybe in the middle. Well, another one of those unanswered questions is if there's disruption of the season, what the heck's going to happen with the playoff, right? I mean, if certain teams, what, you know, what if Ohio state ends up going nine and Oh, and has three games canceled or what, you know, what happens if you have to play only conference opponents, which is entirely possible. Uh, what happens if a, a you know, what if Oregon or well, you know, what if USC Alabama's canceled and SC plays the rest of their games, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen. And everybody's kind of assuming that there's going to be some kind of massive uh, disruption. It could be at the conference level. It could be at the school level, but I also feel like those got, you know, the governors, the Lieutenant governors that they all have alma maters and, you know, there's a lot of very powerful people in each of these States who care very deeply about, uh, about how the football teams do. And if there is, you know, an outbreak in Ann Arbor, but the Michigan football team or the Michigan campus is not experiencing that outbreak, I don't know that they would shut down the Wolverines, you know, or in the Pac-12. If if there's an outbreak in, you know, Orange County, I don't know that that means SC's got to shut it down. I think it may be just left to, you know, SC to do what's, what's best if, if everything's okay on campus. Yeah. With, um, we've talked a lot about like the decision makers at the top level. Um, but obviously there are no games if the players decide they're not playing. Is there any, has there been any from any of these schools, any consultation with the players and any concerns about liability? Um, because this, especially if, schools go to some sort of hybrid learning model where they're not doing big lecture halls and instead just doing discussion sections, um, team activities where there's, you know, 80 to hundred guys on the field at once doing practice and stuff might be the closest thing to the, or maybe the biggest group activity going on on some of these campuses. Is there any concern about liability and have players been kind of brought in at all on the decision-making? Well, there certainly is concern about liability and then, uh, you know, the broader university level schools are asking Congress for some kind of protection. Uh, you know, they want to open up, but they're worried about getting sued by a student, uh, student's family, a faculty member, you know, uh, operations staff person. So it's going to be real interesting to see at the federal level, if there is any protection given to the universities, uh, within football is, spheres itself you know i'm imagining that there's going to be some some pretty difficult decisions with some players and their families and maybe even the coaches as well i know ucla uh you know their student council uh has voted in favor of the the school making sure that the players are well represented not just football but athletes are well representative any in any decisions that are being made um you know it's certainly a, a very big issue and it is yet another question that has not really been answered. 
Uh, and we're going to start to get those answers, you know, as the players kind of get come back onto campus here in the next month. And then the last week of June, first week of July is when they're going to make decisions on training camp and things get real serious. And I think at that point, we'll probably hear more about the liability issue and, you know, players, the player's voice, so to speak. All right. Well, we got some optimism as far as having college football uh, in the fall. So we'll keep, uh, we'll keep following you, John, to figure out what's going on here in the PAC 12. Um, there's also some weird news. We don't do a lot of basketball on the podcast of champions. Just, you know, I don't know. Just a, I mean, we're going to start because UCLA is good again. Um, oh. But yeah, apparently we're going to can... start. I'll... Yeah, no, it's going to be a basketball show starting in uh, November or so. Okay. Well, anyway, I, we'll we'll probably debate that later. But this seems Bruins like... got some good news today too. Right? I know Johnny Juzang avail- uh, uh, eligible for the season. Nice. He's a transfer, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. He's the one from Kentucky. Um. Yeah, well, there's some weird stuff going on at Arizona State between the athletic director and the head basketball coach. Um, seems really strange. I don't know if you've if it's a Yahoo report. I bet uh, Pete Thamel, I believe, is the one that was uh, breaking that and putting some emails out between you know between the two. What what do you know about this and how crazy how crazy Pac-12 is this story? It's fairly crazy. Uh, yeah, you know, there's there have been some allegations of, of sexual harassment. Uh, against an ASU booster by uh, the wives of some ASU athletic department employees, including Bobby Hurley's wife. And uh, there's also, it appears that there's, you know, some uh, disappointment in how athletic director Ray Anderson handled the matter. And he had a very tense email exchange with Bobby Hurley that, that Yahoo made public. Uh, And to me, you know, it certainly makes you wonder about Hurley's, future there uh not that he's probably going anywhere and then you know before next season starts but just his his long-term you know comfort level at asu he's an east coast guy uh and this i would think may make him you know look even even harder about about making the change because it certainly doesn't seem like because it's personal it involves his wife and her her feeling uh, uncomfortable around this booster uh, and the way ASU handled it, that's not something that you necessarily, you know, you're going to get over. Uh, it's not a disagreement you just kind of shove aside and forget about, right? So yeah. it'll be real interesting to see how it impacts Hurley's future at the school and whether there's going to be any repercussions for Ray Anderson, the athletic director at ASU. Yeah, if you're if yeah. you're something happened to you, it's one thing. If it happened to your wife, you better address it because otherwise you're going to hear about it. For I mean, he, he can't just say ah, I'm I'm going to let it go. He he said something to me. It's something through his wife. I mean, that's that's something that yeah, you almost have to address or you're going to be uh, it's going to be sleeping on the couch or something. Absolutely, and it was th- three different. It was one booster with with I believe three different the wives of three different employees. So not yeah, very serious. And uh, just uh, just messy and ugly, and uh, not does not reflect well right now on on the way ASU handled it. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah if what if what Hurley alleges is correct, that Anderson was providing his own kind of ranking system for how to assess sexual assaults or harassment or whatever, uh, that's not great. Not great. Not a good look. Um, in other AD news, John, uh, USC and UCLA now both have their um, their futures mapped out with new ADs. 
uh, UCLA uh, signing Martin Jarmond um, last week. You had an interesting story about this, um, just how each of these schools kind of need to lead the way and provide some real leadership for the Pac-12. And I was hoping you can kind of expand on that for us here. Just what kind of role do you think those two schools and their athletic leadership need to play in the league going forward? I mean, I think that they are critical. They have got to be leading uh, off the field. They got to be winning on the field if the Pac-12 is going to basically be at its best, right? I mean, you know, if you're the Big Ten, you don't want Minnesota and Purdue leading the way. You want Michigan and Ohio State leading the way. And you know, the LA schools, because of their history and because of their recruiting bases and because of the market in LA, I mean, they are vital. Their success, especially USC football and UCLA basketball, is just vital for the conference. And sure, the Pac-12 can can be successful if if they're both struggling, but it's not going to maximize its potential with those two in the doghouse. And they kind of been just face planting left and right for a long time now. I mean, UCLA, it's incredible to me, UCLA football and won the conference in, what, 23 years, 22 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Haven't you know, won the Rose Bowl US, since I was uh, a month and a half old. It's incredible. And, and you think about SC football and, and UCLA basketball, and it, they're just not doing what they need to be doing. And because there have been so many scandals slash messes slash mistakes uh, at both athletic departments the last few years, whether it's varsity blues or, you know, money problems that UCLA is now experiencing or, you know, the, the USC football mess with, with Helton and his contract. There's so many issues, so many, two big dumpster fires, really. It has hampered the PAC 12 and, and, and the new ADs. And I think, I think both ADs have, have a chance to succeed. Uh, they got to get their houses in order first before they can really help lead the conference, right? You can't, you can't lead the conference if, if you're, if things are a mess at home. So they got to get, get things straightened out at home and then provide some leadership and get, and those programs need to win because the PAC 12 is going to be renegotiate its TV deal in, in three or four years. And it certainly is going to be a more lucrative TV deal if the LA schools are doing well, right? If the LA schools are in the tank and they're dwarfed in the market by the Rams and the chargers and everything else, the appetite from the TV networks for PAC 12 sports is going to be lower than it is. If, if those schools are, are thriving and, and they're, you know, appointment tv uh john wilner uh joined us we have one last that was our last topic but we had a little breaking news while this was uh going on and the ncaa tweeted out that the uh basically the recruiting dead period is going to be extended until uh july 31st so uh there's no not going to be any you know summer visits uh so uh, I know saw a colleague of mine tweeted out that there would be uh, that avalanche of decommitments that you're expecting because there's been so many more commitments during this uh, quarantine. It's probably going to have to wait. Uh, typically, August is a dead period, um, and maybe that won't be this year. But right as of now, that dead period is extended through July 31st. Rule number one in football recruiting is there is no dead period, no matter what they call it. <laughs> there's, there is no dead period. Um, I think that this is an opportunity for the PAC 12, this next, uh, how many months until 
six months, nine months through the January, uh, the December and February signing periods. This is an opportunity for the Pac-12 to retain some of the talent out west because kids may not want to travel. Their parents may not want them going across the country, right? I mean, we saw the deal with Corey Foreman, and I think that that in some ways the you know the the pandemic could could help the Pac-12 in terms of keeping talent at home. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how things play out and how the decommitments play out. But if ever you are going to stay close to home, right, it's right now. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, John Willard does a great job. Uh, Bay Area News Group, make sure you check it out. The Pac-12, the hotline newsletter, you have to get that. If you don't get that in your email box, just uh, don't even bother listening to the show. You need to get that. All kinds of great stuff. John, we always appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for uh, sharing some insight and bringing up the IQ level of our podcast here. <laughs> I am uh, always honored anytime, guys. Thanks very much for having me, and uh, stay safe down there. All right. Thanks again, John. We're going to take a quick break and come right back, uh, answering all your questions about, you know, apples and Disney princesses. Back in a minute. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, we're back here on the podcast with champions. Always great to talk to John, Dave. Uh, just he just knows what's going on in the Pac-12, so we we love having him on. That's why he's the source for uh, every single thing we say on the show. <laughs> Pretty much every note we put in. Uh, I feel bad because John Canzano does a good job too, but like John Wilner just puts it in a newsletter for him, and I get to do it. You know, like. Um, Gonzalo has a lot of great guests on his radio show and on his podcast. It's ease of use, man. It's ease of use. Yeah. Wilner knows, he knows how to get it to us, which is first put it in your inbox, not mine. And second, <laughs> uh, make it really easy. Like we don't have to go searching for it at all. It shows up in our inbox. We look at it, we read it and then it's done. It's a couple of minutes. And yeah. by we, again, I mean you entirely. Well, remember all the notes you put? No, you didn't do any of that. Yeah, never mind. Um, well, you did a good job setting up our guests for today. Oh, no. Like, no. Should I, I even? Okay, so here's, let I, I want everyone to hear this. So so I was like, you know, it'd be good to have John Wilner on to get him on the show. I actually thought about it last week, but said, let's do it. So I, I text John. He says yes and come on. Should I even tell Dave that it's happening? I basically sent him a text like, hey, this is going to happen. Well, I guess I sort of asked you, but 
Do I no, need... you 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 asked me. I did. Okay. Um, which I thought was a bold move. Because um, it was we were going to have him on anyway, so it really. I wasn't... mean, the thing is, like, if it, do it, I even leave the question? You know, do, just have the you question show is, up. how drunk should I show up? <laughs> and if I know John Mulder is going to be on, I'll be I'll be sober as a judge. Okay. Um, but you know, if it's just you and me, then who knows? Who knows how deep I'll be by the time we get on? All right. So it's a good to at least let you know. Yeah, you know, it's it's good to provide a few hours lead up. You okay. Know? Just in the uh, in the event of us doing something different. All right. And before we get into all the Apple news and uh, not Apple, like the Apple uh, podcast or anything, just Apple's because we have a bunch of questions about that uh, or at least comments. Um, a lot of haters. I'll just say this. A lot of haters. There are a lot there. of haters. Uh, but some personal news. My quarantine beard of, I don't know, maybe a month or so. Maybe it's longer. I don't know. Uh, is gone. I decided to get rid of it, which is not easy, by the way, when you have a big beard like you need like trimmers to like trim it down a lot and then shave it. So I, you know, I haven't, I don't have a lot of beard experience. You don't need trimmers, plural. You need one beard trimmer. I have You're one on each side, to, one on each hand. You, you just, you just mow your <laughs> entire face and then you take a razor to it. It's, it's quite easy. Okay. Uh, what, so I put little paper towels down to catch all the hair because I don't want it all going down. Yeah, the drain. You'll never catch them all. You can't catch them all. But that's what you do, right? You have some sort of thing to try to catch the hair. So yeah, I usually put paper towels in the sink. Um, and I try to wet the sink beforehand so then it can easily – anything that gets on the porcelain then you can just kind of wipe up with a little bit of dampness. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, so it's gone. I decided, like, you know what? And and most of my beard is gray, but the mustache isn't. So I was like, I might keep the mustache for a little while just to put it on there. And I put it out on, like, the Instagram and Twitter and USC's new, like, basically the number two guy in the athletic department made a funny tweet about saying he put me side by side with uh, Littlefinger, which is from yeah. Game of Thrones. Which a lot of people think I look like him. I don't know what you think about that, but I don't. I haven't seen a Game of Thrones, so I don't know anything about him. But it is a pretty funny thing, and it's sort of uh, probably not something you want. Um, but yeah, I would say there's a resemblance. Um, I want to say I think the beard. I think the beard is a is it's a better look for you. Really, you like that. the beard better. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm a beard guy, um, yeah. but I think beards balance the face better than a mustache, which is kind of, you know, it's it's kind of a weird thing to think because, you know, hair on the lip that should balance your you know your eyebrow hair, right? But I think the beard it fills things out a little bit more. It makes things look more equal with your hair on the top of your head. The whole thing, and uh, yeah. So my, my feeling is – so I've thought about it too with mine. Like if I tweeted out a picture of mine right now, if you just isolate on my mustache, it's like growing entirely separately from my beard. Oh. I could do like a full walrus mustache right now, and I'm I'm really debating it, but I don't think I can commit to it. Okay. Um, yeah, I felt like it was part of it except for the color, but I could have like trimmed the beard a little more because it was getting kind of – I'm just – there was like – Mangy? Yeah, a little mangy and – there would be straggler, longer hair. So I needed to trim it some. But then also the grayness. And it's funny. I posted the thing on Instagram and Just for Men commented on my post. So I think because I put like hashtag graybeard or something, they must have saw that. That must be a, like a thing for them. And I'm like, I guess I could have Just for Men, Just for Mend it or whatever and uh, colored it up a little bit. But I don't know. I just sort of, sort of over it. I don't think I'm going to keep the mustache long, but I just wanted to. Since it was already there, just like oh, just, no, you you got to play with it. I mean, why <laughs> why why even grow anything if you're not gonna like enjoy it on its way down? Um, <laughs> I probably I should have goateed first, and then honestly, like, honestly, what I would say, yeah, you you look younger with the gray beard. Really? Yeah. If I'm comparing these, and maybe it's just these two photos, 
But I would say you look younger with the gray beard. Wow. Okay. Because also the only people who grow mustaches are old men. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. Do I look like a firefighter or something, or what was the? Yeah, know. you look like you look like a, a fire captain. No. Yeah. Uh, nice. Well, there's a little little uh, quarantine facial hair news. We have. Um, I'm seeing a bunch of tweets about this dead period stuff. Uh, Brandon was talking about Brandon Huffman. Um, he said that because August is, is usually its own dead period, he thinks it's probably going to stay as fall practice exclusively because you don't really want coaches on the road then. So maybe it allows recruits to visit during that time, but coaches can't visit. I don't know. But it's, uh, it's a pretty long dead period now of, of not, you know, no in-person visits. I think you might even see more commits at this point because some, I know, you know, you talk to some prospects, like I still want to be able to visit the school. And now they're like, well, now you're going to be able to visit till to the end of July. So they might just say, screw it. I'll just commit instead of, I won't go to go on that visit. And I, maybe I don't see that school that's out of state that I was going to. I'll just commit to the local school or wherever, some other school that I've already visited. Yeah, you could see a lot of that. Um, I think um, I think you're still going to see some guys hold out, honestly, under the same thing, which is why not just wait and see if you'll be allowed to at some point. Um, but... Yeah, I mean the whole thing's going to be weird. If they don't allow any visits in August, then are they I don't know. I'm I'm still like so if if they're not going to allow so say like uh John was speculating if they don't allow fans in the stands, right? Where he's think he's less optimistic about fans being allowed in the stadiums. Yeah. Are they really going to allow high school kids, like not even adults in the stands for recruiting trips? And like official visits and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, yeah, it seems seems unlikely. Um, yeah, I but, don't know. I'm 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 kind of skeptical of the whole recruiting season in general. Like whether or not they're going to even want to introduce extra liability because yeah. I think that is going to play a much bigger role as we get forward into the summer. Is what kind of additional liability is going to be associated with? You know, this new and unprecedented situation and adding high school kids to the mix. I don't know how many campuses are going to want that, how many, you know, schools are going to want that. You know, so my initial thoughts on this, I felt like delaying the season was a decent option. And I think maybe it was Pete Thamel. I think we talked about this a little bit, but it seems like everyone involved, they'd like they'd rather just not have a season than delay it, it seems uh, now we're pushing towards just having it on time. So I think the delay of a season was some sort of logistical nightmare. So don't think that's going to happen. But my also initial thought, which I think might come to fruition now, was that they kind of get rid of the early signing period and just make it in February because of all the stuff that you're going to miss during the recruiting process. And I'm kind of feeling that a little more now. Like if they're going to, you know, if the dead period extends through August, because it's already through July and it's normally through August anyway. Um, do you want everyone signing in December? Can they come visit campuses during games? Maybe they do. Frankly, frankly, have two signing periods, one in February and one in May or whatever. Yeah. Like let guys make a, a decision as late as humanly possible because they're going to have less information. Um, and maybe by, you know, cause I think we're all kind of in the same boat where, um, I think a lot of people are thinking there's going to be some sort of surge in the fall, whether it's a small surge or a big surge or whatever. Um, but hoping that everything is getting closer to like pure normal by, you know, late next spring. Um, if it 
does get to, you know, pretty close to normal and you can actually start visiting campuses again without any hindrances and you can do the normal visits and things, then or if there's even the possibility that that's, you know, out there, then, yeah, extend the decision time frame as long as humanly possible. Yeah. Um, and allow these kids to make educated decisions. I like it. All right. Should we jump into these questions? I got a text message. Um, oh, yeah. Let's do it. It doesn't say who it's from, uh, but it's the title is Red Delicious Sucks. One, the skin is too thick and too waxy. What does that even mean? There's a the little skin bit is of too thick. I don't know about thick, but there's a little bit of a waxiness to it. The shine on okay, there. Okay, fine, fine. A little bit. I get fine. it. Okay, I'll, I'll buy the waxiness to an extent. Thick. It's thin. It's a thin, yeah. thin. Come maybe, on. Maybe compared to the other ones. I don't know. Two. It has no flavor besides just generic sugar. Maybe that's the delicious part. Um, I don't know. It's it tastes fine to me. I, a lot of people hating on it, calling it mealy. Like, I don't, come on. Yeah. No, it's just an apple. He says prone to extreme mealiness slash crumble. I don't know about the crumble. Crumble. What's crumble? I've never tasted an apple that crumbled. Are you sure? Okay. So whoever you are, are you sure you weren't eating a painted apple that was on display? (laughs) That's what he's describing more than maybe (laughs) Esther. He says red delicious has literally no redemptive value besides just being an apple. It is the worst. It's fine. (laughs) It is the worst possible thing. To still fit in the Apple category, even Granny Smith has a defining characteristic slash redeeming quality. I don't think I don't think Granny Smith is even an apple. That is a different fruit. Nothing in apple. the range of apple tastes like that. I don't want to have to pucker when I'm eating an apple. It's a little tart, uh, but you can make good pies and stuff out of it, where you add sugar. Well, great, and... you can make good pies out of lots of different things that aren't apples. Yeah. Granny Smith, not an apple. Okay. Uh, to put it in terms, uh, Dave would understand. Red Delicious is the Carson Daly of apples. Why would I understand that? <laughs> Why would I understand a Carson Daly reference? I I don't. I mean, I know Carson Daly was on K Rock here in L.A. for a long time. Uh, he seems to be pretty successful, but I don't. I don't know what the if, Look, if people get on me. People get on me. I, we've got an iTunes review of somebody saying, "Oh, that, that Dave, I I can't listen to the show anymore. He's too negative." And here I am sitting here defending Red Delicious apples against all you haters, and you're coming at me with just this flaming crap. Oh no, 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 sir. Granny Smith, not an apple. Red Delicious, perfectly fine. All right. Well, you're probably not going to like the next email either. All right. Let's get to it. <laughs> This is from Andrew. Andy. Sorry. Sorry, Andy. Uh, Hello, Ryan and Dave. Dave, you are out to fucking lunch. Yeah, that's right. I am with a bunch of red delicious apples. A red delicious is the tight end coach of the apple world. Ipso facto, you enjoy a tight end coach more than any other position coach. Okay. All right. That's fine because tight end coaches, they can be fine too. Uh, Boring fact. Red delicious apples originated in Peru, Iowa. How stupid is that? There's a city in the most boring state in our country named Peru. They're not fooling anyone. Apple rankings, one, Honeycrisp, two, Gala. Do you go Gala or Gala? What's your thing? I say Gala. Yeah, I do too. A lot of people say Gala. I don't buy it. Uh, Three, the Apple Cup. And four, doesn't matter after that, but not Red Delicious. (laughs) Love, Andy. (laughs) Thanks, Andy. Um, That's funny. Yeah, we would say Gala, but see... When I worked in the produce department, it was in New England, so they would pronounce words differently. So maybe I learned it wrong from the beginning, but I would say we always said uh, gala apples. Yeah, me too. Um, 
Oh, oh, this is about uh, Honeycrisp from Jay in New York. Honeycrisp apples. That's it. That's all he said. Jay in New York. Uh, yeah, I mean, Honeycrisp apples are good. I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to knock Honeycrisp apples. Red Delicious is fine. It's a fine apple. The hatred against Red Delicious, I think, I don't. I honestly do not know what it's rooted in. Some sort of like, you know, hipster belief about apples. I have no idea. Is it you like coastal, a Merlot? You coastal is it like the elites. Merlot of apple? Did like yeah, someone? Yeah, that's what it is. I think it, that's what it is. They're like, oh, it's so common. Whatever. It's I, fine. I definitely used to like it as a kid, and then I I don't tend to buy them much anymore. But I I'm not going to hate on. The Red Delicious, and it's not like I have a particular, like, I always go buy Gala Apples. I usually just kind of look. I like the bigger ones, ones that are you know, usually, like, round, big ones that are crisp, and if, you know, I'll check them out, and maybe some of them are on sale. You've, you've described an apple. Right. You have described an apple, correct. Well, the, yes. the the Red Delicious are, it's not a round shape. It's more of a, it's yeah, like it's a upside-down pear thing. Yeah, it's got kind of a, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of tall. A little bit tall. But if you ever go to like a Gala apple tastes like a pear. It tastes much more like a pear than a Red Delicious does. A Red Delicious, it's got its own taste. Yeah. It's an apple taste. And if you ever go to a farmer's market, I like trying the different ones. They'll have different like uh, like, uh, Asian apples and different kind of apples that you would just try. They have the little samples. Now you can't do that anymore because that's all done. But um, that used to be good to do it. I would try those kind of apples and, and buy those. Yeah, I'm pro apple. I like apples. Yeah. Um, Granny Smith, not an apple. Um, <laughs> Gala apple, somewhat of a pear. Uh, and Red Delicious, perfectly fine. <laughs> Do you have a, a. I like the. Is there a pear that you like? Like. Uh, I, I haven't given much thought to pears. So, like the D'Anjus are more. Like, I think they're a little harder and they're not. I like the sweet ones. I think it's the Bosques or something that they're like a sweeter. Like they'll be, they'll get riper, and it's like, yeah, I like those a lot. Like almost, they're like, put them a little sugar, and they're like the canned pears that you would get that are just like super sweet. But uh, I like those. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, All right, uh, me next. Yeah, Jay wrote in again, I guess. All right, this is from Jay in New York. Kyle Whittingham to USC. Ryan was Whittingham to USC ever something that was close to happening? I remember hearing about it. Rumors. I remember hearing about rumors. Years ago, whatever. Had USC hired him instead of Clay, how do you think he would have fit, and where would the program be? Uh, Jay, I don't think that that was close to happening. Um, I mean, part of the reason is just USC's hiring practices just weren't like to get guys like that. Um, I, I think it would be a, you know, I think he would work well. He's someone that develops players. I, th- I think he's shown uh, the ability to recruit, you know, a higher level athlete too. The more you know, cachet he has in the Pac-12. I think you're seeing, you know, being able to recruit the state of Utah better, being able to bring in guys from California. Uh, I could see him being able to do that. You get the right recruiters on your staff. He could bring in all the five-star guys and and develop them up like he's been able to do uh, at Utah. I just don't, I don't, I never saw him really leaving Utah, looking at LA and saying that's a great fit. And I just haven't seen USC being able to go out and and get someone that would be good like that. Um, so yeah, I, I for to my knowledge, Jay, that wasn't happening. But uh, have you heard anything, Dave? I don't know. No, no, and I it, it doesn't seem like a fit. Yeah, um, but yeah, that would have been that would have been a good one. But uh, yeah, I think he's a he seems like a lifer there. Question from uh, Noel or Noel, probably Noel. What do you think? Hard to know. Hard to know. Yeah. Uh, usually, if you see two L's. I'm going Noel. 
Um, yeah. But hard to know. Yeah. Noel would definitely be with a single L, but this could be a unique spelling. It's hard to know. Okay. So we'll go Noel or Noel. How are you? All right. How you doing, Noel or Noel? Uh, under circumstances where the Pac-12 elects not to play football this fall. Didn't you hear the first part of this podcast? Would you foresee there being an allowance to, to permit, quote, draft year eligible juniors or seniors to immediately transfer to give them a chance to play now? And, yeah, what do you think, Dave? I, I don't think the NCAA would be interested in doing that because it would kind of blow up one of their constituent leagues. Um, now, could the the players themselves sue for that? Potentially. Um, I could see schools themselves um, deciding to do everything in their power to allow it to happen pretty quickly. But I can't see the NCAA passing something that would basically devastate the entire Pac-12, even more, even over and above what canceling football would do. Yeah, I. And it's friendly to players, which the NCAA is generally not fond of doing. I think there was so there was a lot of push for allowing the transfer rule to go through this year. The you know exemption, the for one time exemption, that was tabled, and it's going to happen probably next year. Maybe this is part of the reason why they don't want if if one conference or two conferences didn't have football, you don't want a whole bunch of flood of you know easy transfers leaving and going, and that then it's not just draft eligible people like anybody could leave. So your incoming star freshman could use his one transfer to get out of uh, you know leaving or what you know you know, a school because, you know, they say, you know, uh, Jaden Daniels says, I'm going to leave ASU and go to Auburn or something because they're playing football and we're not, you don't want stuff like that happening. So I think that's part of it. Um, but I, I, I really don't think that we're going to see like the PAC 12 left behind. It seems like all the signs are pointing towards having football. It would have to be some weird case. I think at this point where, the SEC is playing in the Pac-12 is not, but that part of the reason being all those weird things that could happen. Yeah, I kind of I'm 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 with you on that. I I would say right now it looks like everyone's on track to play, and if it ever and if it does get off track to play in the next couple of months, it's going to be because things went wrong with the virus that there was a second wave or whatever that started, you know, this summer, and in that case. I think either everyone's going to be playing or nobody's going to be playing. I don't really see the the middle ground anymore where some states elect to and some states don't. Um, I think, to John's point, I think the conferences are trying to operate in lockstep as much as possible. Um, and it would have to be, because uh, California even seems like it's now getting on track to try to get this going. Um, and if California, which was kind of the stick in the mud for this whole thing, um, if they're now feeling like they can you know, open things up enough to do it, then the only thing that would knock this whole thing back is if there's another decision to lock down at multiple state levels, which if that's happening, that means things have gotten much worse again. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, we, we don't want to be that pessimistic. We hope that's not going to be the case, but if it is, that would be a problem and there'd be a lot of other problems too. Yeah. Yeah. We don't like problems here on the podcast of champions. We like to just float freely through life without any um encumbrance whatsoever like we would like it if that's what um, you do on the show <laughs> yeah we would like to be like what What are the um what are the the ships that are flying through space now the voyagers they're just you know forever just kind of oh, going right yeah, they, they ran out of fuel and they're just like 
Yeah, no, they're just floating. Yeah. We want to be like Voyager. Um, we want to just take pictures and just float on through. We don't want to fly through the heart of a star. We don't want to get sucked into the gravitational well of a black hole. We just want to float through the infinite vastness of space, the infinite inky blackness. Hmm. Could you please just let us do that? <laughs> okay. All right. This is from Hithliday. Uh Lone and level sands. The Pac-12 is scheduled to play three games against Hawaii next season, and seven more are scheduled from 2021 to 2027. I wonder if the time has come to reassess the legacy of their new head coach, Todd Graham. While last week's article in The Athletic about T Graham's time off is filled with the mawkish sentimentality typical of these wither-the-old-warhorse pieces, it raised an interesting suggestion that Graham's constant glad-handing was instrumental in raising the $268 million for stadium and facility upgrades at Arizona State, completed in 2017, just in time for his firing, and that the distraction and exhaustion involved led him to delegate football responsibilities counterproductively. That sounds almost too ironic to be real. Does it ring true to you? No, that does not ring true to me. That sounds... So, and I, I don't know who wrote the athletic piece. I guess I can click this link. Um, and this is no knock on any sports writing. But a lot of times what happens with sports writing is you try to assign a narrative to things that happened just kind of at the same time as if one caused the other. Um, and that does not ring at all true. That he was so, like, so involved in fundraising that he couldn't perform his primary job. That seems highly unlikely. Yeah. I Yeah, I, I wouldn't buy that. We could uh, talk, I'm sure... Uh... Chris Cartman would have some some insights there. Um, yeah. Maybe we'll forward this over to him and get his thoughts on it, and we can. Uh... Well, and frankly, Graham's last season wasn't a horrible one. Like it wasn't like they went three and nine or something. Like that would be that's not uh, what anyway. Um, two, despite being regarded as a defensive coach, Graham's offensive coaching tree is fascinating. Before ASU, it includes Gus Malzahn, Chad Morris, and Major Applewhite. While he was at ASU, he hired Mike Norvell, Chip Long, and Chip Lindsey for his offense, all of whom got hired away. What do you think of the argument that ASU fired him for an offensive downturn, downturn that the university itself created by not ponying up the dough to keep a stable offensive coordinator? Man, Hithliday thinks about a lot of stuff. It's incredible. So this, <laughs> But this thought did occur to me once, too, because um, Graham was always thought of as this kind of defensive guy, but I was never impressed with his defensive calls. If you remember, he was the one who was basically calling a blitz on every single play, yeah, sending like 70 like seven guys yeah. every single time. Um, but it was never like after his first couple of years, it seemed to like cease being effective. Um, all the offenses in the league seemed to have gotten a handle on it. But those offenses, um, starting with those like Taylor Kelly, Kelly offenses were always, you know, up tempo good fun to watch lots of stuff happening um and seemed simple easy to learn kind of the whole thing um that you would want in a college offense so this is interesting and i wonder if it's you know um a case where that actually ended up being more his and this kind of makes sense if you are convinced of your own expertise in a certain field you might not make as good decisions in that field or keep up on things as well. Or, you know, if you, if you're convinced you're an expert, it's the whole Dunning Kruger thing. If you're convinced you're an expert in something, you might not be, and you might be so blind to it that you don't ever see that you're not an expert in it, but maybe acknowledging his lack of expertise in offense, he actually went out and hired guys who had, you know, real chops. Um, but whatever the case, um, 
I don't know enough about the dynamics in why ASU fired him because it did seem to be um, somewhat political more than it was actual results on the field. Um, because again, Graham's last season was fine. Um, let me pull it up. 2017 seven and five is, finished second in the PAC 12 South, I believe. Yeah. And I want to get the circumstances right. Cause I want to say they ended pretty strong too. Um, yeah, they won uh, three of their last four, beating Colorado, Oregon State, and Arizona, um, and lost once to UCLA. Um, yeah, no, they finished really strong. They won four of their last six, um, losing only to USC and UCLA. But they beat Utah on the road. They beat Washington at home, and that was a good Washington team. Um, so yeah, no, that and I remember that 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 team finished really strong, and it was odd, very odd, that they made the decision after that season to fire him. So, yeah. my understanding at the time was that it was political, and then when he followed it up by hiring Herm Edwards, who was his buddy, it seemed even more so. So I don't know if um, any op- offensive downturn. I'd have to look at the rankings, but any offensive downturn actually played into it more as anything other than you know just a rationale for what they'd already decided to do. All right. Anyway, uh, three, quite a few coaches have hopped back and forth across the Pacific, including June Jones, Nick Rolovich, and the late Dick Tomey. What are the odds Graham winds up back at a Pac-12 school? Hmm. I'm trying to picture, like, who would hire Todd Graham. Let's look at the age right now, because I think that's going to dictate it a little bit. I just, I don't think so. Graham's only 55, so he's still got a lot of coaching years left. So if he does well at Hawaii, Hawaii is a pit stop job for most people, so call it three or four years. Um, if he does well, and then, um, where would the fit be? See, it's not, he's not going to the Arizona schools. No, he's there's not no going fit to the LA there. schools. I think the closest thing to a, Hmm. He's not going I don't to think, I don't think, I don't think Utah, whenever Whittingham retires or leaves is going to hire internally. Um, yeah. Colorado, Darrell could fire, could, could get, you know, I mean, if, if he's the same coach he was at UCLA, he could very well get fired within the next three or four years. I guess Colorado's a possibility. Colorado's maybe the one like semi fit I could see just because it's a little bit more Midwestern and Graham's got some Texas connections. He could recruit Texas a little bit at Colorado. Um, Washington, Oregon wouldn't hire him. I don't think Washington state would get the, the next Hawaii coach. If no, they don't want the defensive coach from Hawaii. Yeah, and I, I think Rolovich is going to last there for a while, too. It's got to be something where it lines up where three or four years from now. Oregon would. State? The thing is, if, if Graham does well at Hawaii, I don't think he's bouncing back to Oregon State. I think it would have to be something a little bit better fit for him. So, Like something where he could leverage his Texas connections. That's why Colorado yeah. or the Arizonas would make the most sense, but the Arizonas wouldn't. No. ASU, obviously not, and Arizona, I don't think, would want to. No. So I would call it Colorado if if there's any chance. Gotcha. Um, yeah, that I, makes I, sense. I, and I wouldn't say there's much. Cool. All right. And then four. After his first two seasons in Tempe, Graham had a record of 18 and nine, then improved to 28 and 12 after year three. His replacement, Herm Edwards, presently sits at 15 and 11 and would need to go 13 and 11 next season to catch Graham's mark. How likely do you boys think that is? Um, it's not going to happen. No. Um, yeah, I mean, part of what Graham, I mean, Graham was good. 
especially at the beginning with ASU. And that 2013 team, which was his second year, and I'd have I'd have to go back and look at the makeup of that team, how many of them were inherited players, but that was like the best ASU team since like 98 or 97. Like that was a really, really, really good ASU team. Um, and ASU hasn't, they don't have that, the level of talent that they had on that team. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still not sure Herm is going to do better than Graham ever did. Um, it certainly looks better than I think we were. I think the thing with Herm Edwards is it looks a lot better than I was thinking it was going to look. Um, and so I've had to kind of recalibrate a little bit there. It looks completely competently coached. They look fine. Um, but no, it hasn't reached the heights of early Graham at all. Um, when ASU, I mean, they won the South, I think it was in year two under Graham. So, um, no, they haven't reached those heights, but, um, still a chance that they are built on steadier ground or something. And, you know, they go whatever eight and four, nine and three this year, and then build on that even a little bit more the following year. That could be, and maybe they have a more stable program going forward. I don't know. Um, but Graham, uh, Graham did some really good things the first few years there. Yeah, not 13 and one. Um, no. <laughs> the uh, the lone and level sands, it's like something with a fallen empire or something. Do you know what that is referring to? Um, I think it's another, yeah. So that's Ozymandias. Um, so this is, uh, I think this is Look on My Work, See Mighty and Despair. Um, so it's the one where there is um, it was a so it's this almost a parable um, about this statue that was built of this king. And then on its um, marble or whatever, it said, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. And it was, you know, over his, you know, tremendous works and land. But over time, sand and the wind and, you know, decay washed it all down. And so actually look on my works, ye mighty and despair. It's nothing. It's just right. sand. Nice. So it's like, yeah. so I'm not sure how that the Todd Graham thing, he's like this, was he like declaring like some greatness and then he's just fallen off and now sand has come. I don't know. It's a, I'm not sure what, how that fits. Look, it was good. I liked it. It was a good reference and we're just gonna, we're just gonna keep going. All right. That's all we're going to do. That's all we can do. This is a smart reference from Hitler day. Cause he always has smart references. Uh, unlikely scenarios. Hello, David and the rest. That's nice. <laughs> Let's keep this short and sweet. This, looking at the, the email, it is certainly not short and sweet. So we're already off to a bad start. I have five unlucky, unlikely scenarios. Please rate them on a scale of one to five in likeliness to happen. One being Donald Trump winning the 2016 election, unlikely. And five being Oregon State wins its third national championship in a row, unlikely. So one being absolute truth and five being will never happen. Right. Um, okay. unless they're talking about baseball for Oregon state, then that's somewhat, oh, then that's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, and on a scale from one to five on how beneficial it would be for the teams involved. Okay. So we have to go. There's okay. So we've got two, two structures. Yes. Okay. Got likely, it. I've got it. likely as one, unlikely as five. Beneficial uh, is one on non-beneficial yeah. is five. Unbeneficial right. is five. Yes. Let's go. I will fight you. I will fight you. <laughs> I will fight you to the death. Okay. So this is, so we have to say how likely and how beneficial one Condoleezza rice becomes the next Stanford head football coach. 
Hmm. I'll go not quite five, but I'll go a four. Yeah, four is good because like maybe it could happen. Yeah, they're always. It's always. I'm always a little skeptical of Stanford and their like general commitment level. Yeah. Um. So yeah, why not? Um, how beneficial it would be for the teams involved. So five is least beneficial. Yeah. Then? Unbeneficial. Yes. We'll go four again. I was gonna go three, but sure, okay. Four, yeah. four. Couple I mean, fours. not a whole lot of football coaching experience there, but I am on the record as saying the head coach doesn't actually need that much football coaching experience. I mean, I don't know, but there would be benefits to having like an African American female. There's a lot of benefits, yeah. No, yeah. and yeah. Um. But, okay, let's go three. What right. the hell? We'll move it up to three. Nice. Okay, number two. UCLA's new athletic director uses his Ohio State ties to hire Urban Meyer. I'm very curious about this. I just did before this show uh, my USC podcast, and I had two emails of USC fans concerned that that was going to happen. They were going to be, they were like having nightmares that, that something like that could happen. So, Dave, one being Donald Trump wins the 2016 election, five, Oregon State wins three national football championships in a row, unlikely. What is the likelihood UCLA hires Urban Meyer? Got to go four or five. Okay. Yeah. I think the the issue here is, again, going to be, even with a new AD, it's going to be fit. And beyond all, like, money things, because I don't even know if that'll get figured out, because he'll want a lot of money, and um, UCLA is... They would have to get a lot of booster support to do this, um, which they can do. And UCLA does have some well-pocketed donors, but um, UCLA has been spending a lot of money lately. Um, but I think it's a lot of it would come down to fit. Um, and I think a lot of the ethical considerations around Urban Meyer um, would rub a lot of people in the UCLA decision-making room wrong. So, um I would be skeptical that this would ever happen. Yeah. I would go like four also, but here was my theory and I want to get your thoughts on it because I was saying UCLA went out of their comfort zone to hire Chip Kelly, right? They went yeah. and got the guy everyone wanted that you're like, this is not normally what UCLA does. Trust us, go hire this sure, you know, surefire guy. There's questions there. He's been in the NFL, whatever. No, don't worry about it. Everyone else wants him. You should hire him. You do. And if you're talking about this next year, it's because he was a disaster and, you know, won one out of conference game or whatever in three years. And then you're reluctant to do that again. Like, it's basically another thing where, like, this is the can't miss guy. This is the one everyone would want. Do you really want to go back to the well? Or are you going to go back to more comfortable, where we would feel more comfortable hiring the next Carl Durrell as opposed to, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I wouldn't. So I don't think it would be that um, UCLA. There's there's new blood involved in the decision making at UCLA, and you can see it in the last three hires now they've made. Um, first, Chip Kelly. Look, whatever you want to say about how it's gone, um, the hire itself, the money, the seriousness, yeah. seriousness with which UCLA approached the hire, all of that is totally new ball game. That's not stuff UCLA has ever done in the past. They hired the hottest guy on the market, and it just hasn't worked out. But no big deal. Uh, the basketball search, look, were there leaks and weird things? Sure. Did they end up with a winning head coach from a good program who's had like a track record of 16 years of success? Yeah. I mean, they didn't end up hiring an assistant coach from the previous staff, um, which has happened several times in the past. 
They didn't end up hiring a former player, which has happened several times in the past. They hired a winning coach from a good program. So that's another one where, wow, okay, this is UCLA operating a little bit differently. And then they hired Martin Jarmond, who was talked about as one of the hottest names in the athletic director world. Um, You know, 40-year-old guy who has the Ohio State background who had just drawn rave reviews from Boston College. So that's another serious hire where they put up serious money to get him, Um, which is why I think, I don't think it'll be Urban Meyer, but I think whoever they're going to hire next for the football program, it's not going to be, you know, Carl Durrell again or some random washed up dude who, you know, was not getting a sniff from anybody. I think they'll go out, they'll evaluate things, and they're going to hire somebody who actually has some chops. And whether or not it works out is, you know, that's always going to be a crapshoot, whether a particular hire is going to work out. Um, There's a lot of fit stuff that goes into it. There's a lot of circumstantial stuff that goes into it. And there's a lot of just, you know, some guys are really good someplace and then suddenly they lose it and they're just not good anymore. But um, I think there will be a good process involved. It's just I I don't think it'll be Urban Meyer for what I think are pretty obvious reasons um, where those kind of scandals just aren't going to play with a lot of people around UCLA. Um, And that's just, I think, the reality of it. Whatever you want to say about the seriousness of those scandals, I just don't think they'll play. Yeah. Beneficial scale, um, one. Oh, well, that would be a one. <laughs> one. Uh, yeah. yeah. He would actually recruit like Chip Kelly was supposed to. But, yes. But better. Yeah. And then he, he would, would approach it like a, like a, like a pure, pure psycho. And he would win. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Number three, UCL. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. USC leaves the Pac-12 to become independent and enters a television contract with NBC that is identical to Notre Dame's contract. San Diego State is brought in as a replacement. Ooh, I think this is three or four likeliness, but again, a one, like it would be beneficial for San Diego state, obviously. And, and for USC to have like a a Notre Dame TV contract would be way beneficial. So I'll go three to four and one. What do you think? Yeah, I'll go three and then I'll go two. Just because I think for Notre Dame, they've got these built-in rivalry things that work for them. Um, I could see the Pac-12 being cheesed off with USC and not. I mean, UCLA is never going to stop scheduling USC, but maybe Cal Stanford don't want to do it anymore. And then I could just see scheduling maybe becoming an issue for USC in the long term. Yeah. Well, I mean, Um, the whole argument now about the nine games versus eight is that, you know, Pacific Northwest schools want access to California. I mean, Arizona State would probably still want to play in California. I could see those schools still wanting to play USC. Yeah, but then is USC going to have to do like a barn burning tour like Notre Dame always does, you know, where they have to play a bunch of weird neutral site games or, you know, just agree to basically have the toughest schedule in the country every single year? Um, yeah. You know, and it it just becomes wonky. Um, and Notre Dame's geographical placement works a lot better for it than USC's, you know, Notre Dame's in basically the middle of the country. And so none of the travel is that harsh. Yeah. USC, if they wanted to do a similar kind of thing, you know, they'd have to travel a lot of different places. Um, If they want to get a robust enough strength of schedule to compete as an independent for the playoff. So I I think there would be obvious benefits from like a money angle and, and a couple other angles that would get it to a two but I'm not ready to go one from a beneficial angle just because I I think there are some real challenges to the schedule. For SDSU, it's a one, though, right? Obvious one. Yeah, big time one. Obvious one, yeah, definitely. And I, I think they Notre would Dame. be 
Notre Dame might be it. San Diego also. State, w- yeah, San Diego State would be the. Um, I think they would make most sense as the the school to jump into. And that's more Southern California access. It's it's San Diego, so it's not L.A. And there's just not as much talent down there. But it's you're at least in California. Yeah. Um, four Colorado leaves the Pac-12 to rejoin the Big 12. BYU is brought in as the replacement. Three. Yeah. Four. I, probably three. Like, yeah. I mean, I'll go three. I, I, the Pac-12 could be having some problems down the road, so. If there's an opportunity for Colorado, I'd say, yeah, I, I, I'd go with three. Yeah, I think Utah is more committed to it um, because they came from the Mountain West. Yeah. Um, Colorado coming from another big league and things have not worked out. They weren't necessarily working out at the end of the Big 12 either, but um, maybe that doesn't sit right with them in the long term. And they are, you know, they're the furthest east of all the schools. It might just eventually make more sense for them. So I don't rule that one out. Uh, BYU, I don't think is ever going to be a fit for the Pac-12. No. Uh, yeah, I think that's more of like a four or five for BYU. But I would say for benef- benefits, BYU, that's a one. And I mean, to go in for Colorado, like a three, I would say I could maybe even be convinced of two, but I would probably three. They would be probably be able to recruit Texas a little bit better. Yeah, maybe they just have it. If they performed better in the Pac-12, I mean, they won the, the South once, but it's just been, you know, one bowl game in 11 years or whatever it is like that. I don't know. Maybe it'd be benefit, but they get more money. The big 12 has better TV deal and stuff. Yeah. And then five, the PAC 12 enters into a media contract with Amazon. The PAC 12 scores the most lucrative media deal in college sports, but all the PAC 12 schools are legally required to praise (laughs) Amazon Amazon at every media event. Okay. Uh, So first sentence, um, a three, two, three, Somewhere in that range? Yeah. I think it's, I, I I don't know. I wouldn't be shocked if this happened at all. Um, now, would it be the most lucrative media deal in college sports? I think they would be inclined to overpay, but I don't think they'd be inclined to overpay that much. Right, yeah. So that's more like a four for me. And then praising Amazon, probably not happening either. But No. And so. beneficial, I, I, I think it could be, you could argue a one. Yeah, I think if you get... If it's a lucrative media contract with Amazon and they're going into live sports like that, I think, yeah. I mean, the good thing about Amazon is if you're on Netflix, like a lot of people have Netflix, right? Um, Yeah. A lot of people have Amazon Prime that don't watch Amazon TV. You know, it's not like I subscribe to Disney Plus or I subscribe to whatever. You know, I think HBO Max is coming out today. But there could be, I think you could reach a lot of people that just have Amazon Prime accounts that maybe don't use it, but they were like, oh, I want to watch Pac-12 football. A lot of people are missing out on The Expanse then. Great show. I haven't, I've got to check that one out. Sci-fi. I'm Gotta doing, uh, I, I stopped kind of binging for a while, watching, I don't know if we talked about that last week, but I started back up at the, the Man in the High Castle. So I had seen like the first season of a few years ago. And I'm it like. It gets weird. It gets weird. I'm all, yeah, so I'm at the point where knowing what's going on, like I know what travelers are now, and I'm just like, this just seems very strange. But um, or at least I know the basics of them. I'm in the beginning of season three. Um, yeah, but I love World War II stuff. But this is just I don't know. I'm I'm not loving it, but I'm kind did of you, into did, it. Have you watched Plot Against America, the miniseries on HBO? Uh huh. If you want a better and I think more mm, palatable version of that plot against America is better. Okay. 
yeah, it's it's more tightly focused. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's really good. Is it, are the reviews for the Man in the High Castle good, or is it kind of mixed, or what's the mixed? Um, there's so there's two things going on with it. One, uh, there were parts of especially the first season that were like indescribably boring. There's yes. a lot of it that's also really awful, um, and you've got to be careful about how you're depicting. It's the same. Com- Remember when? Um, they announced that Benioff and Weiss, the idiots who did Game of Thrones, were going to do a Civil War show, yeah. but it was going to be about how how things would look if the South had won the Civil War. And oh there was like outcry about it because they're like, oh, what? You're going to depict modern day slavery? You think that's a like a really great idea? And you got to be careful with that because Man in the High Castle is also depicting what if the Nazis and you know Japanese had won World War Two. And then you've got like in the first season, there's like a Jewish family gets on uh, not to spoil it, but there's like a Jewish family that gets uncovered and then they get like literally gassed on the show. And it's like, ah, this is really yeah, not not great. Um, and so I, I think with all that stuff, you got to be careful of the artistic choices being made. I mean, obviously consume whatever you want to consume. But yeah. I, I the, the show itself was, you know, they made some interesting choices but like like you i'm kind of riveted by that stuff and like the alternate history crap like i i was like reading all that stuff when i was like 12 and so i'm i'm you know sick puppy that i am i'm not going to turn away from something like that but still i mean it's not that one i didn't think was as well done i thought there were some complications with how they depicted all that stuff Uh, plot against america though is really good okay Um, and i thought dealt with it in kind of the the reality of it where you kind of feel the Oh wow, you kind of feel the like terror of that moment and that sort of thing. So, recommend. Yeah. Well, there was a. Did you read the book? Uh, there's the Man in the High Castle is based on a book. I don't know if it was. Yeah, like, it, first it's, season. It's different. It's very different. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's. Uh, yeah, it's based on uh, yet another Philip K. Dick novel. Um, you know, sort of like Blade Runner and and a couple others. Oh, nice. Um, okay. So yeah, it's it's good um, the 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 novel, um, but it's it's very different and much shorter. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, all right. And he says, uh, on a serious note, thank you both for your weekly wit and banter. You make this time of quarantine a little more familiar and a little less boring. Stay safe. Warm regards from Kian. Thank you, uh, Kian. Appreciate that. All right. Um, if we're open to doing quick one hundred dollar ads on our podcast, we can. I uh, I emailed them back. Great. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my Shane. god. Ooh, okay. You 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 win this week. <laughs> Fabula de XL. Uh, this is from Shane. Fellows, I posted the full policy breakdown where it belongs on the stupid internet on the POC Reddit page, so all these Ron Paul trolls can get the bootstrap get their bootstrapping mitts all over it. Nitpick my punchlines and slather my work in whataboutism. In the meantime, I'll say this for the Reagan versus the myth of Reagan. Okay, so just for those who didn't know, uh, Shane was assigned, I think on our Zoom call, uh, the task of writing a defense of Ronald Reagan, um, which I think is posted now on our Reddit page. Nice. So go there if you want to check it out. Um, here's the summary. I think, uh, the myth of the Reagan era is akin to talking about the 2019 ACC, but only ever referencing Clemson. The ACC whipped ass in 2019, didn't it? I mean, I saw Clemson play a bunch, so I'm pretty sure there was some great, so I'm pretty sure that some great football was played in the ACC. 
We ignore that the majority of us were, and as a direct result of all those policies, still are mediocre to kind of terrible and struggling to stay competitive. The long tail impact of his voodoo economics leaves the 1% accumulating levels of wealth unseen since the Great Depression. But we all witnessed a moment of accelerated greatness at the top, so that's the lens through which we tell our collective story. We're all a bunch of NC states out here banging on a drum for somebody else's dominance. In the last three recruiting cycles, Clemson has signed 11 five-star players. The rest of the conference has signed two. That's by design. If Clemson is better, we all get better. They create exposure for our brands, which in turn feeds our recruiting, which will help us compete on the field. In the meantime, we're going to get completely murdered, but it's probably our own fault. If we strapped up and worked harder, we all could have been Clemson. That's the myth of Reagan anyway. I'm not sure it actually happened that way. If you love Reagan as the father of a fiscally responsible small government modern conservative movement, read the Reddit post. He didn't actually do most of the modern conservative stuff we tend to give him credit for. If your critique of him is based on some crazy fact-based point of view, good news for you. He was literally an actor charming and smiling and eating jelly beans while a bunch of crimey goons undercut labor unions, the American worker, funneled money up to the super wealthy, illegally sold weapons to foreign dictators, sunk billions into an untenable war on drugs, propping up regimes and dictatorships in Central and South America, killing and imprisoning millions in American cities, hastening the private prison boom, and eventually convincing like 60 million of us that we needed a 2,000-mile-long wall along our southern border because thousands of families are fleeing on foot to escape the murder of drug regimes he helped put in place. But our parents sat on their front porches drinking Bartles and James and jamming out to Steve Winwood or the California Raisins or whatever, so he's cool, I guess. So there it is, Ronald Reagan, not the shitbag hero the conservative movement thinks he is. Anybody who loves to dunk on bleeding heart libs like me should check the Reddit. I think I figured out how to get my typing onto the internet where it belongs. Note, big long walls are an effective military deterrent historically for cavalry. Because horses can't climb ladders or ropes or dig tunnels or overstay their visas. I have no question. Keep up the work. Your friend and compatriot, Shane. Nice, Shane. Um, so not a Reagan fan. He's not, apparently. I, I, there was a little ambiguous there, but it doesn't sounds like he was on the fence, but probably leans not. Now, we did, we did assign him a defense of Reagan. And yes. I, don't, I don't feel like this was a defense of Reagan. No, maybe the one I haven't read the Reddit page yet. Maybe the Reddit page is a defensive rig. I I kind of think maybe not, given okay. the the tenor of this one. I kind of yeah. think maybe maybe the Reddit page is perhaps even more vitriolic. Well, we'll see. I'll I'll check it out. But Shane, we'll just agree to disagree. Reagan, the American hero, like we all feel. <laughs> <laughs> so you're NC State, but you're rooting for Clemson. Yeah, I'm rooting for. I I, I know Clemson's helping me out, even though they're kicking my ass. So I'm like, I'd rather. I get it. Would you rather be in the Pac-12 and just be like, you know, no one's good and just like everyone's no. the same? You know, we want to we want to lick them boots. I lick want, them boots. I would rather. So, so that's what the people when they're talking about, like, well, this is what they do in Europe. They get, you know, 12 weeks of vacation. It's like, yeah, well, did they invent the freaking iPhone there? No, they invented it here because we work hard. Like, that's just what the way things work. Like you you can make it. So did they did they did they invent like Western civilization there? <laughs> That oh, was a long time ago, baby. Wait, They've changed wait, their work they habits. Did. They've changed their work wait, habits. Wait, the, uh, here's a question Where's for you. Amazon? Is the iPhone, Where's Intel? Is the iPhone, is the iPhone good? <laughs> I, I don't have one, but I assume it is since everybody has is one. A, is, okay, fine. Is a smartphone good? Yeah. Why do you think it's good? Why do you think it's a net good? Oh, so now I think you want to get <laughs> because it makes our lives easier. 
Does it? Yeah. Or or does it make your work hours not actual work hours because you have to check your email all the time? True. So we we make that our work ethic here in America, we make it even like that that device allows us or, to work even more. Or is it not good because it provides another addictive element so you stop staying in touch with actual reality? So if you, however, whatever floats your boat, David. I don't know. This has been a long show. <laughs> I know everybody freaking has one, and we're the one that invents that shit because we don't take 12 weeks of vacation a year. Dude, when I graduated college and went to Europe, um, I had a job, uh, engineering job waiting for me. I had like four weeks off after college before I started working. But you, you talking about the iPhone is, again, you rooting for Clemson. What do you care whether we, quote, we invented the iPhone. And as if it's like related to whether or not we get 12 weeks of vacation a year, which is very likely is not. But like, what do you care whether we invented the iPhone? I mean, it's like you should care about your 12 weeks of vacation a year. Wouldn't that whip ass? I, I would. But I mean, like, we're, you know, if you're NC State. You just care about you're getting your eight wins. <laughs> the hell do you give a shit if Clemson's winning a national title? Who cares? It, but it's funny, like when I went to Europe and Hadn't really, tra- I'd never been to Europe before. I traveled, um, you know, after college, like I said. Well, in July in Italy and everything was closed because people were on vacation and it ruled? No, I was on, it was, uh, no, when was it? I think it was June or whatever. But that, um, you know, graduate and I had a job waiting and meeting the travelers, like people that were like, same thing as us, like me and my friends, they were like from Australia. And they're like, yeah, we graduated. How long are you traveling for? A year and a half and you're like what and like just the thought of putting your life on hold for that long like it's just not in our dna you know as a, as americans like you can't do it now i think australia is a more extreme example because you're so isolated when you're going to go somewhere like you're going um but that's just not the way like i was jonesing to get home after a month and that was when i was 21 years old or whatever um it's just i don't know just i was ready to get back to work i've been working since i was 13 years old i mean i had a paper when i was like nine so I, I, that's just the way I think. I don't know. I I like it, but you want to be Clemson. I get it. Yeah, I get it. I don't know. All right, let's go on. Will in New York City. This is a question for the podcast. Well, thanks, Will, for letting us know. Uh, hi guys, was thinking about the following scenario and like to get your thoughts. If college football ends up having a split season, where some games are played in the fall and then there's a break before resuming in early 2021, how do you see this impacting the following? That's a crazy scenario, by the way, but okay, let's go with it. Uh, coach's strategy on allocating four games for redshirting freshmen to play. Quarterback battles, teams with a more established quarterback that struggle early. Would you see more teams uh, shake things up when football returns in early 2021? Example, if uh, DTR for UCLA struggles early, do they have a higher chance of going to yank off since there will be a gap in the season to make more changes? And then anything else you could see impacted from a coaching strategy and roster management perspective. Thanks, Will in New York City. First, I, I, the likelihood of this playing out this way would be uh, minimal at best. I think by the time you get into, so say you've played a little bit in the fall and then you get into like February or March when you're thinking about starting it up again, so many people are going to be like, no, nah, I'm shutting it down. I'm, yeah. I'm not playing. Um, so I, I don't see it as likely, but let's let's just allow that it's possible. Um uh, the thing is you wouldn't know going in whether or not there was going to be a split season. So I think coach's strategy on allocating the four games will be much the same as it is now, 
where a lot of schools will just plan to play them at the end of the season. Some will play them just whenever. Um, I think a lot of schools still haven't developed a real strategy for it. They've just kind of been like, okay, well, when they're ready, they'll play. Um, but I think you'll still see the same thing where they plan on playing them the final four games of the year or the first four games of the year, depending on what the individual coaches, um, you know, previous plan had been, but I don't see it really being adjusted by the pandemic. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it's, if it would, I mean, just, there's so many problems with that scenario. I agree with you, but, um, yeah, I, all of those strategies would have to come into play. Like when you would redshirt, could you change you know, rosters, you might have, you might have to, because players that played the first four games and they're, they're going to, they want to go to the NFL. They'd rather not play in February. They'd rather just go get ready for the NFL draft at that point. So I think there's so much stuff that would change. Um, but it does seem like an unlikely scenario. If you had to stop, if things got so bad, you had to stop. That's probably the end of the season. I, that would be yeah, my guess. Exactly. Um, and then as for the quarterback battles, um, yeah, I mean, I guess in this scenario, it would allow you that opportunity, but again, unlikely. Um, we got yeah. one more. Okay. Yeah. Let's do the next one. All right. Earl in Dallas, Ryan and Dave with students returning to classes being a pivotal step to the return of college football this fall. I had a random question that would be fun to get each of your opinions on. If each of you were hired to teach a class at a Pac-12 university this fall, what class would you teach individually and what class would you teach as a pair? We all know who would be preparing the lesson plans for that class you teach together. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you, Earl in Dallas. Huh. What what academic subject do you think right now with, like, say, a week of prep you could effectively teach at a college level? Wow. Um, like, is there a single one that you think you still have enough knowledge that you could do it? Like, and not like, not journalism. No, no, I would never teach that anyway. Like, I'm just not, you know, that was, that was like a hobby that I just do for a living now. Um, so my, with the engineering background, like, I think in a week I could probably get ready to teach like calculus or something again. Um, could you, I don't know. Is that, is that rusty? No, rusty almost doesn't exist. It would just have to go back and like. But you think you could relearn it? Like, you think there's enough remaining in your brain that you could like the embers of calculus with like a few weeks, like a week of reading? That'd probably be tough. Yeah, you're right. That's probably tough. Um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe something like like a history class because, yeah, you know, like, do you, it's not like there's problem solving stuff that you have to, like, you know, techniques or things. Um, I mean, you could. You know, you're assigning reading assignments and stuff. You're talking, but I guess you're talking about things. I don't know. I think that would be tough. I would, I've always thought about like, if I was going to teach, like probably more at like a high school level, like if I retired and either something in the math, like something like calculus or something, or um, I always thought history is interesting, but I just never really studied it or, you know, but I, I thought it would be interesting to kind of be a history teacher, but not because I have like the background, I guess. The daunting part about this question for me is the university level. Like, I feel like I could jump in and teach like high school history. No problem. Like if you gave me a week, like at the college level, like what would I actually be equipped to like deliver a lecture on? Like, are we, are we overestimating college students? Maybe we are not overestimating (laughs) the students, just overestimating like 
Pac-12, like, I'm not overestimating. Like, Pac-12 schools, they're good. Yeah. Like, you sit for, a, like, a history lecture at UCLA, and, like, yeah, there's some snoozers, but some of these guys are, like, really good. And so I'm like, I could maybe, I think I could work myself up to teach, like, a really, like, tiny angle of the Civil War, maybe, if you gave me a week of, like, and I had to really, like, you locked me in a room and I just had nothing but, like, Civil War text to read. Yeah. Um, but it'd be tough. And I think if we were to co-teach a class, it would obviously be on uh, Reagan, an American presidency. <laughs> that would be good. Um, just me, just Ryan preparing all of the notes and me making fart noises when he talks <laughs> every single lesson. Nice. Uh, Earl, hey, good stuff, uh, Earl in Dallas. That would be, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I've th Have you thought about that, like doing a teaching kind of thing? Yeah, a lot. Um, I, it's one of my like fallback things that I think about um, that and law school. I always like when I'm in a panicked mode, I'm always like, oh, or if basically I think about teaching when I'm really burned out and I think about law school when I'm in like panic mode, like, nice. oh, God, I got to do something. Um, so you're, and, still, you're still young enough to consider school. Like I could not. Consider yeah, no, school but I'm, I'm almost not like I'm almost at the point where I've just <laughs> got to be like, look, your life is your life, buddy. You got to just do it. Um, so, yeah, teaching, I, I always kind of, because I, I like everybody in my family is a teacher, more yeah. or less. Um, so I've, I've, I've thought about it a lot. Um, I don't really have the temperament for doing it with like anything under like ninth or 10th grade. Because um, small children, as I'm, as I'm learning in my <laughs> beloved uh, fatherhood years, drive me absolutely insane. Uh. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, th I still think it's my like future destiny to be a uh, high school history teacher, but we'll see. Interesting. Um, yeah, for school, like if, if I didn't ha get the job I had where they would pay for, I was working for an aerospace company, they would pay for my master's degree. And I went basically right after my undergrad, which kind of sucked because you're like ready to be done. But, you know, if I didn't get it done right away, I don't think it would go back. But I, I thought about like, well, maybe I could, now I got a master's in engineering. I could do like a PhD. It was not that much long. I guess it's longer, but, um, but that, I didn't want to like leave my job. And it was really the main reason would be to just be called doctor. So I didn't really want to do that. So I, I, after my, you know, six years of college, I was ready to be done with it at that point. I, it's hard to imagine going back. Like some people went back and got an MBA. I was like, ah, I just, I don't think I want to do that. Yeah, well, that's another thing is because I talked so much shit to all my friends who went to law school. I'm like, ah, oh, you <laughs> sucker. What the fuck are you doing? Um, while I'm like living the high life teaching the LSAT. Um, and they're all done. They're all like working like you always work the really crappy job that you have initially out of like law school. And then you move on to like your second job. And most of them are there now, um, which is like a better job. They've got a better handle on it, the whole thing. And I'm like. Oh God, maybe they made the right choice. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have. And also like if I went back and did it now, then I'd have to renege on all my shit talking. And if all life is for me is just owning my shit talking and like carrying it forward to the end of my life, just so I don't have to recant, um, then that's a life well lived, isn't it? I, I think it is. Well, that's probably a good place to end it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of tired. I, well, I did a show before this, but man, this is a, this is a long one. It was a long one, but it was a good one. We talked to John. We yeah. had a lot of fun. It's great. It was fun. Yeah. Good stuff. 
Uh, well, that's David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. We really do appreciate you uh, listening to the show. And uh, please uh, subscribe on all the different podcasting platforms. And if you have an Apple device, go to that Apple podcasting app and give us five stars. Leave us a couple sentences of why you like the show. We really would appreciate that. So that's Dave. I'm Ryan. Thanks for tuning in. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball. And baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does. (laughs) Nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.